Welcome to the Mustang Owners Podcast. And now your host, John Clore. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Mustang Owners Podcast, the Ford Performance, Inside Ford Performance, I should say, edition. I'm your host, John Clore. I'm the Enthusiast Communications Manager of Ford Performance, and with me is Mike Ray, the president of the Mustang Owners Club of Southeastern Michigan, and probably the go-to guy in the United States of America when it comes to Mustang clubs. Mike, thanks for joining us again tonight. Thank you for having me, John. Looking forward to this episode. Yeah, this is kind of a special one. Um, you know, I, I think every once in a while, Mike, um, people think they know a lot about Mustang history, but sometimes we we don't take the moment to recognize the people that made it so great. And I think tonight we can make it share a learning moment with some a little bit of Mustang history. But before we get into that, we should mention that uh, we're going to be talking about things that may not be legal. And, and I, by that, I mean... <laughs> I mean, uh, part of Mustang's history, whether you want to believe it or not, was uh, earned on the streets of Main Streets and Woodward Avenue and your own Woodward Avenue and your own town and your city. And unfortunately, Mike, it's still true today, but back in the muscle car era, not everybody racing was racing at the drag strip. Oh, I agree. Definitely uh, street racing. And I'm sure we both have tons and tons of stories we can share with them of our uh, teenage years growing up. And for me, uh, for you, it was probably more Woodward. For me growing up, it was Telegraph here in, uh, in Michigan. So um, that was our, our big unofficial drag strip. And I think I've, I find it kind of funny, though, coincidentally today, that uh, yesterday the new GT500 KR was introduced by Shelby, which is a pump gas 900 plus horsepower street machine um, that could be definitely be used in some illegal street street racing. Uh, so, John, do you think they uh, you know did that just to coincide with our podcast here tonight? <laughs> of course they did, Mike. They they waited <laughs> until we were going to get on the air to talk <laughs> about these street machines, and of course, if you've been reading headlines, uh, I know they've been making the waves all across the United States. Uh, uh, thieves have been targeting cars like the Shelby GT500. In fact, I heard some of them got uh, broken out of the uh, Flat Rock assembly plant and, and driven off. I think they didn't find all of them yet. And uh, I just... do have two for sale. <laughs> oh, do you really? <laughs> all right, well, these aren't the ones that have front end damage from the gate at Flat Rock then, right? No, those two have been recovered. There's two still missing. So if anybody's oh. interested, give me a call. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, a lot of people would talk to me about that and they said, you know, what, you don't have a title, what are you going to do with that car? And quite frankly, if, if people don't know, they do wind up in shipping containers and go across the ocean. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize what happens to when professional thieves get the older cars like this. In fact, just today, uh, some of the local news in Detroit was talking about Charger Hellcats being driven off lots and uh, the same thing's happening up. So Mike, when you talk high horsepower, uh, street cars. They, uh, they, I wouldn't call them exotic, but they're very expensive and they're limited production. Uh, so in, in a way, Mustangs and Chargers and Hellcats and Camaros can all be exotics. Right. Absolutely. And now, uh, just from you were saying about shipping over the containers, that brings up the whole um, Gone in 60 Seconds movie, right? Exactly. And now yeah. that's an, isn't that the anniversary of that movie? Yeah, absolutely. Even though those that Mustang, I remember, was driven on what, two wheels? <laughs> well, good old Eleanor. 
Yeah, you ain't kidding. All right, so folks, what we're going to talk about today is some um, some other news that I'm I'm not sure if everybody knows. I'm sure everybody knows that knows Mustang history knows of Bob Tasca. Bob Tasca Sr. played a huge role in the development of the Ford Mustang as a muscle car. And Mike, you know, I I hate admitting this, especially to Chevy guys, but growing up in there, you know, I wasn't quite at my uh, getting a license at that point, but my brother sure was, and he was a street racer as well as a racer at Detroit Dragway, where I finally wound up, uh, which is no longer, it's Sibley at Dick's, they used to say. And Mike, I think Dick's Road in Sibley is now uh, condos or something. <laughs> I don't know what's out there. And I know, my, I know firsthand my dad lived at Detroit Dragway, um, racing and watching uh, during his uh, growing up time too. Yeah, that was a big part of, uh, and you know, if, if, if you're not really storied on Mustang history, um, let's face it, when the, when the Mustang came out, even with its little 289, first it was launched with a 260 and uh, shortly followed that with a 289, which was a great little motor, uh, the Ford small block. But, but quickly, we've Ford Motor Company, and when I say we, realized that the 289 wasn't going to cut it because the uh, muscle car was already in full bloom. And um, by the time the Hypo 289, the high performance version came out, you know, small block Chevys had grown to 350 cubic inches and running against a 350 against a 302 or a 289, it, you know, there was cubes problem and uh, it was a constant struggle. So you can say what you will uh, against uh, Mustang versus Camaro, but Camaro had always had been a formidable competitor in the power compartment. And I think what really got Ford going was competition, like without, you know, Chevy uh, constantly up in the ante and Mopar. Um, it, it could be that Ford wouldn't have got into uh, the big blocks and, and gone as far as they did. I, I don't think that's a stretch to say, would you think? No, not at all. And uh, speaking back to those days, I'm, I mean, we knew a couple of those racers, didn't we? And we had the opportunity this year to sit down with one of them at Carlisle. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you the, the most historical guy when it comes to the Cobra Jet race cars when the 428 came out, which everyone kind of agrees, all the Mustang historians out there will tell you, that uh, Mustang got its credential as a muscle car when the 428 Cobra Jet motor was launched. And of course, the, the famed uh, Winter Nationals where the, the Cobra Jet team, Ford launched a, a, a team of some of the best racers in the country to go up against Mopar and Chevrolet. And of course, um, you know, it was a sweep. They, they completely mopped the floor with everybody and Al Joniak uh, was out there. And I got to tell you, you're right, Mike, this year when we got to sit down with Al Joniak, and ask him some of those pointed questions. You know, you know. We also know another racer, Mike. Uh, you've been interviewed by uh, Sam Oxer Jr. Yep, great, great guy. I love Sam. Well, Sam, after he heard us interviewing El Joniak at the Cardiff Ford Nationals, and heard Al's story and explanation of how he got all of his fellow Ford racers to red light, so that he took the championship back in the Winter Nationals. And you know, don't forget those cars were all prepared by Bill Strop. And those cars were supposed to be all equal. So it was supposed to be up to the talent of the drag, the driver that would get you into the finals. But for some reason, everybody, even the Ford guys were red lighting against Al Joniak's uh, Cobra Jet Mustang. So the question we laid on Al this summer was, how did, why did that happen? You know, how do you explain that when these guys were you know, just as good as anybody else, right? And the, the funny answer, Mike, was that he said that, you know, he... He, he knew the cars were were prepped by Strop, and he knew how Strop liked to have camshafts to come in mid-range because he was a primarily an off off-roader, you know. 
and he didn't want to, and, and Al wanted the low end power. And the rumor got around the pits that he had swapped cams out of his Cobra jet. And um, that's why everybody's trying to get a jump on him. And I, Sam Oxford Jr. said that he doesn't believe that story. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, so, that was great hearing it from Al, though. Oh, yeah, it was great. And, you know, uh, it, it's all great. He, and he's got a great new book out in case you are looking for a Christmas present. Al Janiak's book, um, it, it, it's the inside look at being one of the greatest four drag racers in history. And, you know, what a story to tell. It's a great read. I recommend it to all. And, and of course, if you don't know about the Cobra Jet Mustang, our old friend Rob Canan, he's got a great book out through Cartech. He did it with uh, Diego Rosenberg. And he's got the Cobra Jet book, The History of Ford's Greatest High Performance Muscle Cars by Rob Canan. It's out by Cartech. It's like $44.95, best, best history of the Cobra Jet that you'll, you'll ever get. And two great Christmas presents. But before we get ahead of ourselves, Mike, the bottom line was the Cobra Jet, you know, at the small blocks were giving it to him. The Boss 302 kind of changed things a little bit. People don't know a whole lot of story about that engine and why it is not a 302, uh, you know, and people are confused about a 351 Windsor versus a 351 Cleveland. And, you know, so Ford really went through a lot of iterations to finally, uh, you know, get on the map. But but to tell this story properly, before we get into Bill Cole, we you got to know about probably the most famous guy behind the Cobra Jet, and that's uh, Bob Tesca Jr., or uh, Sr. And when Bob Sr. was was out, he was selling hot Mustangs. I mean, these are the bullet era. And Mike, you know how it is when you sell hot product. Guys will come in, Ford guys will come in, and they're buying a car to beat somebody. They want to have the coolest car. And I don't know, are guys still coming in the showroom and saying they want something with more horsepower than a Camaro? I mean, does that, do, these, do they still talk competition? Absolutely. But you know what, the Cobra Jet, you know, those don't have VIN numbers. So uh, that's a ready-to-go um, car right to the track, right from the um, right from the order bank, right to the, the racetrack with nothing to do for it. And you're going to have the newer ones, like an eight-second car. It's yeah, absolutely- can you, yeah, can you imagine that, Mike? You can go to a Ford dealer, order a Cobra Jet through the parts counter, and I think there's still some left at Ford Performance. You there can is, buy- actually. I think there's three of them left. Wow. Yeah, it's but that's I mean you're talking about like a, a full out drag car and me and you both have had the opportunities to uh be at a couple of the Cobra Jet delivery uh yes. days at Flat Rock and um with Bob Tasca Jr. Yeah he was always for that and watching the owners um pick up their new vehicles and to hear those things start up, I'll tell you what, that there's no other sound like it in the world. No, you're you're right. And you know, to be able to go to a car company in, in 2021. And go to their parts counter and buy a Cobra Jet Mustang, which is straightly take you right to the strip and pull a wheelie and run in the eights. It's just, it's incredible. But that's the story of the Mustang Cobra Jet, which was first built for the street. And a lot of people don't realize Ford didn't just go build a Cobra Jet. In fact, when the 390 Mustangs came out with a bullet movie was out, um, guys would buy come into Bob Tasca's dealership and buy a 390 Mustang GT and go out and race and they'd come back and say, I want my money back. Because a 396 Camaro or a 396 Chevelle just mopped the floor with me. And he said, this, this 390 is a boat anchor. And they, they were really upset. And Bob Task is a Ford guy, and he's not going to let some guy walk in there and get beat. And so he had his own shop uh, do modifications on the, th- the big block 390s. And they could use 428 police interceptor heads. They had, they had four-barrel man- dual quad manifolds. And so he knew the hot-rodding business. And it wasn't until he stumbled upon the right mixture of camshaft carburetors intake manifold and cylinder heads when he actually proposed the the engine then he called it you know with carol shelby they called it the cobra jet 
but it was the 428, uh, basically a police interceptorized 428. And, and he proposed it to Ford. Now, Carroll was smart enough to say, I'm not building GT500s with a 390. So if you want even a 67 GT5, you're going to get a 428. And he was smart enough to wait for the Cobra Jets because he knew that with the, the Shelby name on it, it had to have all the power that Ford could muster. But what people don't know is that it was Bob Tasca's insistence on Ford getting to build this car. And he, he knew Henry uh, Ford himself, Henry II. And he actually proposed this several times. It was turned down, Mike. And it was because he just thought it wasn't needed. Well, you know what? When he showed him, look, we got this, we, we could do this motor ourselves. He actually went behind Ford's back, got a test of the, uh, the, his motor in, in a car magazine and got people to write into Ford saying, you got to build this Cobra Jet. We want it. And that's when Ford finally relented on April 1st, 1968, said, okay, go ahead and build the damn thing. And that's how we got the Cobra Jet in because a Ford dealer was into racing and really wanted the best possible cars for his customer. Like they didn't have what they call performance salesmen. That whole dealership was keyed to selling to, to performance people. And you have to admit, uh, without dealers that are into performance, this whole idea of having high performance cars would have died a long time ago. That's why I feel very fortunate in the position that I'm in, um, especially here in Motown, right? Um, we are the Ford's the Ford Performance premier dealer in the state of Michigan right now. Carry every single brand of performance, and uh, very very lucky to be the the point guy at all of that um, for all the performance needs of everybody. So if you're t you're telling them if they uh, if they'd like to get a high performance Ford, to, even though if they live in another state, they should call Mike Ray. Absolutely, Shelby, Roush, Ford Performance, Celine, Steeda, Tuscany, um, RTR, any of them you want, I can get it for you. Well, that's the kind of the, a guy that I think uh, people don't realize that Bob Tasco also as a dealership wanted to sell that to the public and get people to know. But Bill Kolb Jr. was another guy that I think a lot of people don't know anything about. Well, he passed away on Friday, December 3rd, uh, and he lived out in Carefree, Arizona. But, but people don't know that he spent his entire adult life in the automotive retail business he was building and racing marketing specialty cars especially when he launched uh, the the bill ford uh bill kolb jr white plains ford he was out in um, in new york in white plains new york and he was the guy along with bob T or tasca senior bill kolb was probably best remembered for, for doing that being the poster guy for total performance and mike there was that old saying win on sunday sell on monday i don't yeah. know if people understood what that means Yep, went at the Dre's track on Sunday and selling the showroom on Monday. Yeah, and that's that was the point behind total performance. If you see it, oh man, this car could go 500 miles and beat the competition in a race around a, a track. Well, I, I should buy one of these, and then a Monday goes in and buys them. You know, and to to Bill Kolb's point, he um, it, you know, he was campaigning before really Mustang was out. He had a 427 lightweight Galaxy in his in '64. And then he also, when you remember the Fairlane Thunderbolts, uh, the Super Stocks? He yep. was like, yeah, those things, they were both sponsored by Larson Ford in White Plains, and where he was, he was the high-performance sales director. He was the Mike Ray of 1964. <laughs> and then, I'm not kidding you. And then, of course, he, I remember the, he did the ye little yellow wagon when the little red wagon was out, because he was a Ford guy, right? I mean, he, yep. just had, he had to do that, and he, he did, of course, a 
a wagon that was really, really popular. And a lot of people don't realize that Bill Kolb Jr. was a close friend of Carol Shelby and Lee Iacocca when he was VP of Car and Truck Group. And, and in fact, Iacocca directed Kolb to set up a unique Shelby dealership within Gotham Ford out in New York City. And this was the first dealership within a dealership that was selling and servicing only Shelby's. You know, so he became, uh, he was on the performance council for, for Ford and he was the only actual salesman to be part of the group because most of those guys, as you might guess, Mike, would be dealer principals. So having a guy that really got involved heavily in Shelby to the, with the direction of Iacocca and then wind up selling the most Shelby's out of that, you know, that New York dealership between 1965 and 1970. Kolb sold more Shelby Culver's, more GT Mustangs, and more GT40s than anyone else in the United States. And you can check with SAC if you don't believe me. He still had set Culver sales records. I mean, that's that's the kind of guy. In fact, he scared my buddy um, Marty, Marty Shore uh, on the West Coast uh, when he took him for a test drive in a GT40. But he said, well, we're going to go to a track. And he said, no, road testing should be done on the road. <laughs> So the, the, the rumor is, ladies and gentlemen, that when they took Marty Shore out on this little test drive, Bill Culp Jr. said, well, we, we end up dodging New York City taxiways. They slipped in between delivery trucks. They even zoomed by police cars jumping uh, near the curbs and women and children and puppies. It was scaring everybody. I mean, it was, he said, how this guy stayed out of jail mystifies me. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, I mean, when you think about uh, even into the 80s, he got involved with Ford as a manufacturer. He actually had a company called Spoilers Plus, and he added styling add-ons. And people don't know, remember the Ford EXP. I'm Mike at the Moxham Docks Ice Cream Show. Uh, Autumn Schwalbe's mom brought a F Ford EXP out there. Yeah. When's, when's the last time you saw that? When my mom owned one back in 86. No way. <laughs> Well, Kolb yeah. had a whole line of bolt-on styling components for Mustangs and T-Birds. You know, he worked on the EXP. He was selling aero kits. In fact, one of his spoilers wound up on Bill Elliott's uh, 87 Daytona 500 winning T-Bird, which you remember set a record at 176 miles an hour. And Bill Elliott apparently sent some note to him and says, thanks for your air dam. It, it has the record. Signed Bill Elliott. I mean, that's the kind of guy Bill Kolb was. And without... Without having dealers like, you know, Tasca Ford or Bill Cole, we just wouldn't have performance. I, I just don't believe it would be the same, Mike. And I, I think maybe it, it's it's somebody down in, in up in the sky got in Fordland ought to thank dealers who get heavily involved in performance because those are the guys that get it into our hands. You got to tell them the story now of what gets the dealers excited was all the execs of the companies, the John DeLoreans with the GTOs, and um, tell the story about the Ford guys, how they all used to go out and test on Woodward. Um, I think you have a little bit more insight on that. And I'd love to share that with the audience. Well, ladies and gentlemen, in case you don't know, of course, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people don't know why we even celebrate Woodward Avenue, even though the, the automotive industry in the United States was kind of born along there. Um, you know, the Piquette plant uh, that started the Model T, the, and the, in fact, the um, where the Model T was really built up in Highland Park, where most of the millions of those were built, that building still stands. Chrysler started along Woodward and American Motors and General Motors. I mean, the whole the whole industry really was along that corridor, but that was down in Detroit, not where we celebrated up in in, in those days. We we celebrated north of Nine Mile, and th this there was street racing. I you know it it happened. I did Gratiot too, and you did Telegraph, but 
Woodward was where you went if you had a hot car and stoplight to stoplight. And back then it was kind of tolerated, not accepted, but tolerated. And I hate to say this, but where these engineers at Ford, GM and Chrysler took their latest you know, performance innovations and under the dark of night, they took those cars out of their engineering departments, went home and on a Friday or Saturday night, you could see prototype vehicles being drag raced right there on the street to see if they have the what it takes to take on the best of the best. And then you could say, you know, it was uh, <laughs> tested on the road, road tested. Yeah. And that's, that actually happened. Now, you know, today you'd, you'd lose your job. There, I mean, you couldn't do that. But back in the day, it was so competitive. I mean, people even you know, heard John DeLorean was out there with Pontiacs and there, you know, heads of Carcamata marketing guys were out there. They were trying to get their finger on the pulse of the muscle car era. And by God, they sure did, Mike. I and mean, we, we lived in that era. But by the time, you know, I got around, uh, the Detroit cop, busting yeah, those guys. My dad was a Detroit cop, and my brother was a Woodward Street racer. So how did that <laughs> dynamic work out for me? <laughs> I love you know, by the time, by the time I would, you know, could afford cars, it was we didn't have Camaros and Mustangs and and Challengers and Cudas. We had Pintos and Vegas and Gremlins. Oh my! I mean, it was like it was a different era. Uh, but I got to tell you, you know, it, it, there's still a love for performance. And you know, by the time the Fox body hit Mike, you know, performance was dead for the longest time. And by the, by the time the Mustang GT and the Fox Buddy came out and we started to make 200 horsepower again, that's where we get the the, the nomenclature 5.0, rolling in my 5.0 came from when the five liter Mustang, the Fox Buddy came out and made some heyday on the street. You no, know, when I was growing up teenager, obviously the Fox Buddy was my era and that's all I owned as a teenager growing up. And we were racing, like you said, on Telegraph and everything. And But the car to beat then back in those days in like 86, 87 was the Buick Grand National. And uh, that's oh yeah, we had to go against them. We kept trying to soup up the Mustangs to go out and beat the Grand National every weekend. And, you know, we hate to say it, but, you know, um, that that kind of stuff still goes on today that, you know, the, you see stuff on television about uh, kids doing pulling donuts and uh, the, the horsepower in the street, you know, eventually you've got to get this stuff to the racetracks. Even a lot of people don't realize that the Detroit Autorama, the whole Autorama series was put together by a hot rod group who was constantly getting in trouble in Detroit. And they were constantly getting stuck by the cops. One cop out in Livonia, Mike, um, talked them into coming out to a business park, which is just being built back in, the, in those days. And they, he actually used his radar gun to, to make them go drive safely in a, in a deserted section of town instead of on the street. And he, he convinced them to put the show up show together with all their cool cars. I think it was at the Light Guard Armory up on 8 Mile. Um, and they put together a, a car show. They called it the Autorama. And guess what? They made enough money from their car show. They never thought anybody would show up. But they, enough people came that they collected enough money to buy a piece of property and um, and actually create their own drag strip. And that's where they um, they built the, D the Detroit Dragway and the Motor City Dragway. And they started building, they, they were the first club owned drag strip in the United States. And that was because the cops were working with these young street racers to go out and do this safely in a controlled environment and not on the street where people can get hurt. Don't give me ideas for the club to buy. Uh, we're gonna have Mox and Dragway pretty soon then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know where, where if you're listening anywhere in the country, but at least in Michigan, uh, our some of our favorite drags, Milan Dragway was the last one uh, on this side of the state, and they've they've closed up shop. And I heard, Mike, is it true that that's going to be a condo development? I did hear something along those lines. I haven't confirmed that yet, but I did hear that. But speaking of drag racers, we should have actually had Autumn Schwalbe on with us. Um, 
you know, local member and four performance girl and actually drag races her car. And uh, that would have been really cool. We will. Let's uh, make sure uh, we'll talk to Autumn Schwabe and tell her story how, you know, and, you know, it's that's a great piece because, you know, she's been a male dominated sport and she shows up there and and the guys give her guff. But when she smokes them down with her with her fox body and just runs them ragged. And I think she was one of the uh, along with Joanne Rita getting the 30 under 30 from PRI this past weekend. She was recognized. Um, and you're right at Ford performance being the marketing department uh, to be able to be a successful drag racer. And now, of course, Mike, I hate to say this. I think she's got the, the, the cut the bug for the Bronco. Yeah, I think everybody has, and um, no one more than myself. Like I said, um, you know, we're having a sister club that I'm forming out of Moxham. It's going to be called Boxham, which is the Broncos Owners <laughs> Club of Southeastern Michigan. So, but it's all for club, and we're just uh, spreading the wealth, if you will. Now, you're serious about that? I mean, it, 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 so as the love for this car for like 57, now going on 58 years, as people are, are seeing it, maybe, maybe it's being seen as a car that's lived its time and it's time to do something else. Because the rage right now that, Mike, I've never seen anything like the off-road rage. Everybody wants to have a, a four-wheel drive. They all want some, I mean, Raptor kind of set the pace for Ford. When that first came out, I kind of said, who's going to, who's going to go you know, 2% of the population go off road. Who's going to buy that? And look at now it's the hottest truck in the world to have, even in China. You know, and I got to tell the Ford joke. So the inside Ford joke, uh, especially within the Ford dealer world, you know, people come in and said, you know, is the Bronco like a Jeep? We like, yes, but for men. <laughs> so that's what the Bronco is. And uh, I can tell you, I have driven a Jeep and I have driven the Bronco and, you know, not so much off road. So I can't speak to that effect, but um, I think looks and streetwise driven, and uh, I, I just the Bronco is ten times better in my opinion. No, that's okay, Mike. I, you're you know you're the performance salesman. We got that, but <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that you know the Jeep came out of World War uh, effort, and a lot of people don't realize that Ford Motor Company was one of the first companies to build the what they call the Jeep, um, and actually was was more profitable for them, for them to get in the airplane business. So they passed that along a lot to other car makers and Willis um, took the same, you know, blueprints as you will, and, and wound up being with American Motors and uh, they didn't think the franchise was worth much. You know, you got to give Jeep some credit that they, they kept it going this long, oh, but absolutely. for the long, for the longest time, like that was a niche product and it was considered like very few people be interested in it, but now they've got serious competition with what the Broncos. Oh, absolutely. Doing. And you know, Jeep is the most modified vehicle in the world and Mustang is the most modified domestic car in the world. So, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they have some, some similarities there, but yeah, Bronco is, uh, basically came to market and with everything that Jeep was missing or the Jeep basically did wrong. in most people's opinion, like the mirrors on the doors on Jeeps, you know, we put them on the fenders on Bronco. So, you know, when you take your doors off, you still have actually mirrors to look out of. A little things like little that. things like, you know, they, they adopted a military vehicle for the, for the road and the, you know, and people who compare performance, you know, when it comes to Mustang or Camaro, it was all about, you know, zero to 60 and, it was about that street racing. And, you know, yeah, now a lot of people like to take them on the track. Um, you know, they actually turn left and right instead of just going fast in a straight line, which is all part of uh, the modern day performance. Uh, but it's completely measured differently when it comes to off-road vehicles. The beauty of all this is that, you know, all these years later, Mike, we're still dependent on 
fun vehicles that just put a smile on your face, no matter if you want to go sling mud or go smoke some tires. Absolutely. I agree. Well, I got to tell you, um, I, you know, it's sad to hear about Bill Culp Jr. I mean, of course, we know all, a lot about a task of Ford, but you know, when you look back at Mustang history, yes, if you, you know, Al Johnak will tell you uh, the 428 Cobra Jet Mustang uh, was such an icon and it really put, you know, the Mach 1, like a 69 Mach with a 428 and a shaker, uh, you know, that, that was probably the every man's muscle car. And it, it, that's the car that changed Mustang's personality forever and said, okay, I'm not a, I'm not just a, a fun, small little sporty car. That's great looking. I can actually go like stink and, you know, boss nines and all the wonderful stuff we've had all, ever since that. The fact of the matter is Mike, what you sell today, even in, you know, in, in any of the Shelby's that you sell, even a Mustang GT, the performance of those cars you're selling today right now out of your dealership, Gorno Ford, it, it would outperform anything we built in 1968. Yeah, it's so crazy. Like you said, even the EcoBoost Mustangs now are more powerful than the 2005 Mustang GT that I bought. Um, just technology these days is just really, really came to a new level. Well, what we will ask is that for all those people out there who gets tempted when some guy's at the stoplight next to them and they're thinking of the back in the days of the Cobra Jet Mustang or uh, street racing or Woodward Avenue to try to control yourself and take all that wonderful passion you have for cars and get it to a track. Mike, I know you're going to be involved and Moxham's going to be involved with uh, the Mohawk track experience just before Woodward. Are you going to do that again next year for 2022? Absolutely. Uh, that's literally one of the best events that we host each and every year. Um, Paul Roca does a great, great job with that and um, allows everybody to be out there for performances always there. Shelby's always there. Roush used to be there. So um, Gateway Classic uh, Mustang is there. So you know, you, you want to learn and to get your have some fun on a track. That is the place to be, um, especially in the, during the week of Woodward. So it kicks off Woodward week every year, and we're actually adding a day this year. So for beginners who've never been on the track, so that's going to be Monday this year. Tuesday, Wednesday will be our normal track days, like like always. But Monday is going to be for the beginners to come on out. We're going to do a little car show, and we're also going to give everybody the opportunity who have never been on the track before to use. Are yeah. an experience to see what it can do as a beginner and with beginners only on the track. That's so important. So for those of you who have not been to a track day, um, these kinds of events are key. They're safe. They're controlled. They have professionals teaching you. Learn the capabilities of your car in a safe and prudent manner. You'll never really realize how capable your cars are. And in fact, Mac, Mike, I, I got to tell you, I think a lot of cars are more capable than many of the drivers. Oh, by far. <laughs> There's no question. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say that, but you know, I, I, when I worked at Auto Week, I remember driving my first Porsche 911, and when I saw the taillights pass me up, I thought I was doing something wrong. Now, those cars are easy to spin, but Dodge Vipers, all that stuff, it takes a little bit of knowledge. You really need to know how to properly drive a high-performance car, and I totally agree with you, Micah. They can get in touch with Moxham or any of your local Mustang clubs. A lot of them have track days. I totally encourage, do it right, do it legal, and you know, have fun the right way. And um, yeah, it's it's sad the passing of our our one well, some of our great dealer stars, but uh, we do have still great Ford dealers. And Mike, for those of people that don't have a great Ford dealer, um, you know, it just takes a little bit of looking. And I think the best advice you could probably give is if you join your Mustang Club, don't those people know where to shop? 
They absolutely should. And um, yeah, there's a lot of great Ford dealers around the country that I specialize in performance. And uh, and I'm very close with all of them. So I work with all of them. Uh, I work with Lebanon Ford down in Ohio, um, Brock Patterson at uh, Ruddick Brown um, down in Tennessee. Um, huge, huge dealer down there. So um, there's a lot of them around the country. So yeah, you know, your Mustang club is your, your gateway to all those and uh, great with maybe even doing an event there or to promote the dealership as well. And, you know, even maybe obtain them as a sponsor for your event and your club. Right. We, as we talked before, um, dealers that don't understand performance are very important. And uh, Mike, it, it can't be said more often, the Mustang clubs and joining a Mustang club can help you make the right decisions on where to buy, where to shop, how to modify and how to have fun. Um, very great advice. I appreciate that. So ladies and gentlemen, I hope you appreciate a little look back into Mustang's history, uh, not just appreciate what Mustang has been through to become the muscle car that it is today, but it was there because of not just Ford Motor Company, but the dealerships that understand performance and the club members and people like you listening who have made Mustang the icon that it is. Mike, thanks again for joining us tonight. And I thank all of you for joining us and look for us next time on the Mustang Owners Podcast. And remember, until next time, when it comes to Mustang racing, it's always better to have the rubber side down and the shiny side up. Have a great night.